welcome those of you who are joining us online, and uh, we're excited that you're studying the scriptures with us and worshiping with us today. I want to invite you to join us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we continue this study of this powerful book. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, has given to us 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Many of you are dog people, and uh, you, you love your dog. You, uh, some of you, I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't know who, and I'm not thinking of anybody, but some of you may worship your dog a little, maybe a little bit too much, love him a little bit too much. But, uh, you know, I don't know if, you've, um, if you're the kind of person, and again, we're not going to take a show of hands, but I don't know if you're the kind of person who, um, who feeds your dog from the table. And again, I'm not going to ask you if that's you, but um, you have... Uh, if, if it is you, I want you to know that you've created an annoying dog, especially when you have company over. Have you ever been over to someone's house who feeds their dog from the table, and you sit down to eat with them, and that dog is right there? And especially if you're like me, and you're not a huge like dog person, the, the proximity of dogs makes you just uncomfortable anyways. And I don't have, I'm sure there's some psychological reason that I'm not uh, a good dog person, and I, I'm sure that that could be explained. I know it's a deficiency and a flaw. Many people have told me that, but here I am, and uh uh, there's that dog, and I'm like, well, what's, what's he doing? What's, what's, why is she right there while I'm eating my dinner? We're like, well, we, she wants something to eat. I'm, I'm like, you guys don't feed her. There's like, you know, they make these bowls and this stuff that comes in like these 60-pound bags you can buy, and it's called dog food, and they can eat there in their little bowl and away from the table. And they're like, no, they want you to feed them. I, I'm like, but I was, I mean, it was a good meal. I complimented you, and I'd kind of like to eat it, you know. I'm not a skinny man here. I'd like to finish my plate and um, and, and, you know, there's this, like, you can see in that dog's eyes, this impatience, like, he's not, like, saying, please, it's like, no, you, I deserve this, it's like, this is what we do here, this is your tax for joining our family's table, like, you owe this to me, there's a sense of entitlement about the dog, you know, uh, but, you know, many of us are like that as well in our, in our everyday life, we all have certain things that we think we deserve, that we're entitled to, and the Apostle Paul, is he is speaking to the Corinthians here in this passage that we're going to look at this morning in chapter 9, is dealing with this question of rights. The, the title that we've uh, put on this uh, message here is asking the rights question. And uh, as we read this passage together, I'll listen in closely as the Apostle Paul talks to the Corinthians. Before we read it, I want to just remind you where we are here. He's He's, this whole section, chapters 8 through 10, are dealing with the issue of food that had been offered to idols. And there were some of the Corinthians who were like, yeah, this is no problem at all. And others were like, this is a big problem. And Paul centers, uh, kind of sides with the people that says, yeah, this is a problem, but maybe not for the reasons that we would think. His main issues, what we saw in chapter 8, was first of all, that the Corinthians were being unloving by ignoring those whose consciences were truly bothered by eating meat. And Paul said at the end of chapter 8, I'm not going to destroy my brother and sister just so I can fill my belly with this meat. This, this, it's not worth it. And so he, he comes after them and reminds them that, that uh, love is a, is a more powerful issue here. We need to love our brothers enough to be willing to forgo our right to eat meat. Well, now, in chapter 9, he's coming at their pride those who are demanding their rights say, well, we deserve to be able to eat this. Come on. We know that it's not a sin. We know that there's nothing wrong with this meat. And so it's, it's one of our rights. We should be able to do this. And nobody should get in our way. 
So the Apostle Paul is going to speak to them about this issue of rights. It may seem as we read this passage that this has nothing to do with the whole issue of meat being offered to idols, but really Paul is, is continuing in the context, continuing his thought, and wants to show them some examples of giving up our rights. So I would like to read the first 18 verses. Please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. It says here, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense for those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written... For our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve in the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this thing of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching, I may not, that I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make a full list of my right in the gospel. All right, let's take a look at this and see what Paul is, is sharing with us here this morning. The first thing that he wants us to see is the question of rights. The question of rights. The, the word for rights is used six times in this passage. It's the Greek word exousia. It means a state of control over something, the freedom of choice, uh, something that we have a say in. The word right first shows up in verse 4. And Paul uses it here in this passage to, uh, he kind of in these first six verses, he asks a series of questions, and the, 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 the rhetorical questions, but the obvious response is, well, yes, don't we have the right to this? Yes. Shouldn't we be able to take a, a wife like Peter did? Yes. Shouldn't we have the right to financial support as ministers of the gospel? Yes. Paul really begins here by kind of by setting them up, as it were. Like, listen, 
We all have things in our life that we believe we deserve. And on paper, we do. There's nothing wrong with any of these things that Paul listed here. But what the Corinthians needed to learn was that there is something bigger at stake. There is a bigger issue at stake than me getting what I want, what I think I need, what I think is coming to me. He wants them to understand that the gospel is what matters most. Not what I think I should be getting, not what I think I'm entitled to. As believers, it's easy to get caught up in that mentality. And we're going to look for some, it, towards the end, we'll look at really some specific ways that we might be tempted to demand our rights in our Christian lives. But Paul begins by just drawing them in with a series of questions to help them see that, yes, on paper, I've got all these rights too, guys. I deserve, like you're saying you do, certain things. But you can almost hear the but coming. And so that's the, the second thought, is that he's going to go into illustrating our rights. And as, as we were reading, you heard a number of illustrations that he gave that um, kind of centered in on and focused in on uh, his right as a Christian worker to receive support from those to whom he ministers. So he says, I'm going to talk to you about rights. And his, he's going to use several examples, but his primary example is the right of someone in ministry to receive wages from those to whom he ministers. Now, the, I, I don't, the, 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 the focus and the thrust of this passage is not to prove that pastors and missionaries and full-time Christian workers should be paid. Uh, that's not what we're talking about this morning. But Paul uses that picture, which is it's, it's a truth, and he proves it here in this passage, but he uses that as a, as a picture of rights. You see, he, he mentions the, those in the military in, in verse, um, I believe it begins in verse 7. Verse, yeah, verse 7. Who serves as a soldier is his own expense. He uses an example from the vineyard. Uh, he uses an example from the dairy farm. He speaks of a crop farmer. He says all of these people should be able to reap from what they have worked for. They should be able to enjoy some of the fruits of their labor. Someone in the military is not going to go out and serve in this, uh, in this role as his own expense. He should be taken care of by the people or the government, as it were. Those who serve in the vineyard should be able to enjoy some of the fruits of their labor. All of these, all these examples are building up to his primary example of those who work in these various spheres of life to obtain provisions to live. And so those who proclaim the gospel should be provided for it materially. But he says in verse 11... That if uh, and he kind of kind of is building his argument here and coming to a, a peak of his argument and he says if we have sown spiritual things among you is it too much if we reap material things from you if others share this rightful claim on you don't we even more see Paul says I I have the right to be charging you and asking that you support me in the gospel ministry that I have but um, verse. 12 says that 
he chose to set aside those rights. He says at the end of verse 12, Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. See, Paul says that um, I could demand that you guys are paying me. And he chose, rather, to work. We know Paul was a tent maker, so he and Barnabas worked on this side. We also know that he received support from other churches. This kind of was his pattern. When he went to minister in some place, he never charged, it seems like, he never charged those to whom he was ministering, but he relied on not only his trade, but on the support of other churches whom he'd left, other, other places he'd been to support his current ministry, never demanding those uh, uh, of those to whom he's ministering. It's, it's a very good uh, a process for church planners, for those who are beginning to start out work in a new community or missionaries going to a new area. Uh, if you're seeking to lead someone to Christ and you're beginning to see a church come alive and grow and, and more being added to it, um, down the road is the time to really begin talking about tithing and giving. Uh, maybe not too far down the road. You should lay some of those foundations. But that, it, it's such a helpful thing for church planners. And, and this, this principle I see all at work all over the, the U.S. and the world. It's such a helpful thing when they're supported by other churches, other, other individuals, so that they don't have to be a burden or, or place that, that claim upon those to whom they're ministering at that moment, those new believers. And Paul says, I'm, even though I could demand this, Old Testament, and he quotes the Old Testament, and he lists, we're not going to go into it, but he lists all these reasons why he has the right to demand it. He says, I'm choosing to forego that because I don't want to place any kind of obstacle in the way of the gospel. Verse 12 is so powerful. Paul says, he said, I would rather endure anything than have something hinder my message to you. He uses that word, that word endure is used here just a couple of chapters later uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, when he talks about love. And he says, love bears all things. That's the same word, the same Greek word. It endures, it suffers through all things. And Paul was living that out among the Corinthians. He says, I would rather endure, I would rather suffer, I would bury with, rather bear with any injustice than to put any kind of blockade in front of the gospel. What a heart to see the name of King Jesus glorified and lifted high. That should be our desire. As we seek to live out the Christian life, our heartbeat should be like Paul. God, help me not to put any obstacle, any barrier in the way of the gospel going forth. The Apostle Paul illustrated that there are many things in this life that we have the right, as it were, to demand, to expect, to lay claim to. But when it comes to those rights getting in the way of the gospel going forth, we should be willing to set them aside. That, that word for obstacle is something that holds back the progress of something. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. He did not want to hold back the progress of the gospel. As we look at this last section, then the last thing I want us to see is rightfully considering 
our rights. Rightfully considering our rights. He says, look at verse 15 with me if you would. He said, but I have made no use of any of these rights. He, as he ministered among the Corinthians, he didn't demand, he didn't seek to get his own way. He wanted the spotlight never to be upon him, but only upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember the beginning of the book? He, he starts off and he, he just can't stop talking about the cross. This is him living that out. I don't want to obscure the cross by saying I deserve this or I am owed this. Paul wanted to, and, and he kind of speaks sort of, um, I, I, think, I think he's trying to use some, humorous here, some humor here because he's not, we know that he's not the kind of guy who, who boasts. He's already said, far be it for me to boast in anything but the cross of Christ. But then he says here, uh, he, he says, I'm not going to, I don't want to be deprived of this ground of boasting that I've never taken anything from you. I'm kind of proud of that. Even though I'm not supposed to be proud, I'm, I'm proud of that. You see, as Paul ministered, he had been compelled, had been stirred by the Spirit of God. Verse 16 says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I love this verse. There's so much here at work. That word necessity is, is a constraint inherent in the nature of things. It's a, it's a pressure. This, this ministry, and he uses the, the picture of it being laid upon him. You can see God just physically laying this calling on him. And he says, I have to do this. Preaching the gospel is, it's my lifeblood. It's what courses through my veins. It, it's what gets me up every morning. It's why I stay awake late at night, long after you guys have gone to bed making tents so that I can earn my wages and, and be able to continue to minister to you. Paul was so driven by this constraint that he wasn't willing to let anything get in the way of what he was saying and doing. Paul's language here reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah. If you've ever read Jeremiah, even know a little bit about him, you know that Jeremiah was called by God in the first chapter of the book, and he was promised that his mission would not look like what we would consider a success. So people are going to hate you. People are going to reject you. People are going to despise this message. And there's a place in Jeremiah chapter 20 where Jeremiah is in prison. He's in shackles. And you hear him wrestling with God. You hear his despair, his frustration. He's kind of venting to God. And he's going back and forth in his heart and in his words. And he, and he, and he says to God, I'm done with this. I am so tired of being rejected. I'm done. 
But then almost in his very next breath, he says, but I can't. I can't stop speaking your message. And in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, he says, If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. I love those words. Jeremiah had a message from God. And he grew weary from holding it back. He'd gotten tired of the rejection. He'd been hurt. He'd been broken. And so there were times when he was tempted to to keep it to himself. And he says, I can't do this. There's a fire shut up within me that needs to come forth. I can't help but speak. You remember that in Acts chapter 4? Peter and John are pulled into prison they're beaten, and, and they're, they realize that the, the, the leaders there, the religious leaders, realize they couldn't hold them, so they beat them and sent them on their way. And they're like, by the way, you can't talk about this Jesus anymore. And they're like, listen, whether this is right in your sight or not, I, I don't know. We can't help but speak of the things that we've seen and heard. We've got a fire shut up in our bones. I think even of the story of in Job, this is an a, a, a often skipped over portion of the book where um, Job and his friends have been going, for, going back and forth throughout the course of the, the story. They've been giving him bad advice. He's been defending himself. And we all know that God did not allow the affliction to come on Job through sin and punishment. But at some point, as he began to justify himself and get proud throughout his discourse, uh, he began to... He, he, he sinned, and, and, and he is now kind of, uh, uh, kind of on, on the wrong foot with God, as it were. And so um, uh, there's this young man by the name of Elihu who's been kind of sitting. We don't know if there's been a crowd around Job and his friends or if it just happens to be this one guy. There, it seems like there's at least a few people out there sort of listening to some of the exchanges going on. And Elihu's a young man, and so he's kind of kept his mouth shut. He's like, listen, I, I'm, I'm young. I shouldn't be speaking up to you elderly, wise guys who, who have, have the years of wisdom behind you. But he says this after he's listened to them go back and forth. He says in Job 32, verses 16 through 22, and he says, And I shall wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more. I also will answer with my share. I will also declare my opinion, for I'm full of words, and the spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open up my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery towards any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Elihu had heard some some bad theology. He'd heard and seen Job's pride, and he's like, I can't be quiet anymore. These are like wineskins inside of me. They're ready to burst open. Elihu had a fire in his bones, and the Spirit of God had led him to speak truth to these men. I wonder today, do you know what it's like to have a fire in your bones with regards to the things of God? 
I realize that none of us, none of us have the exact same calling. Not one of us have Paul's calling. Okay, we don't live where Paul did. Paul was given a special message. He was, he was a, an apostle to the Gentiles before there were apostles to Gentiles. So he had this special, I mean, he's writing books of the Bible, okay? So we realize that his calling was certainly unique. But I don't think the truth here applied only to Paul. I think there's this, there's this, there's this truth regarding the people of God that as we as we learn to function within our giftedness, as we listen to the Spirit of God, there will be a fire in our bones for something regarding God's kingdom. And it will center around the gospel. It may be working with kids. It may be one-on-one discipleship. It may be teaching in groups. It may be a heart for evangelism for the world and mobilizing missionaries into all the world. It may be serving the poor and some of the things we talked about last week, refugees and those, uh, the pro-life movement and serving the unborn. What is it? I know that our Christian lives go through ebbs and flows and we have times when maybe we're not feeling that passion and that fire. I think every Christian goes through that. I think history bears that out. But I wonder if you've ever known what it is to be compelled. Paul said, woe is unto me if I don't preach the gospel. I, want, I would do anything rather than put a blockade, a hindrance in front of the gospel. What has God called you to? What has God's spirit equipped you for? Do you have a fire in your bones for the things of God? He longs to use your giftedness, your unique personality to preach the gospel where he has called you to. May we be like Paul, may we be like Jeremiah, may we be like Elihu and not be able to hold it in. What was Paul's conclusion here? Verse 18 says, What then is my reward? that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make the full use of my right in the gospel. Paul wanted to do whatever he could to remove those things in his life, those those so-called rights that might get in the way of him proclaiming the message. And Paul said, listen, I have not, and and to, to stick with his example, he said, I have not I have not demanded money of you. I've not asked anything in return for what I've done for you. Even though I could have, it was my right. I longed to make sure there was nothing in the way of the gospel coming to you. He wants the Corinthians to know, listen, I understand you have the the right to eat this meat. I know you have the right to, to, to say you deserve this. But it's getting in the way of you living out the gospel in front of your fellow man. And in two, two weeks, when we get to chapter 10, we'll see how it was also affecting the unbelievers around them as well, not just the Christians. As we close, I want to just focus in on a couple ways that this applies to us. Three questions I think we need to ask ourselves. The first one is, what obstacles might I be placing in front of the gospel. Paul said in verse 12, I don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel message. I remember, and I think I've shared this story before, but uh, when um, 
uh, I was re- getting ready to propose to my wife. She had flown out from California where she was living with her family at the time and had come out to, to surprise me at my graduation. And I didn't know she was going to surprise me. It was a legitimate surprise. But I had the ring ready, and I, was, I thought I was going to be able to pro- propose to her in a couple months when I went out to California to get her and move her out here. And so uh, she came, came to my graduation. I'm like, oh, she thinks she surprised me. Well, she doesn't know I got the ring. So we'd already been talking about a marriage, and like, she knew it was coming, but she didn't know I had the ring yet. So I was pretty excited to surprise her. And so throughout the course of the day, uh, I came up with this great plan to, to propose to her. There was a park that we loved down um, south, uh, southeast of Grand Rapids, kind of just out in the country, and it was a beautiful little riverside park that we'd picnicked at before, and I thought, this is going to be a great place to propose. Well, we had just got a lot of rain that weekend, and it was a Saturday evening, and we drove, uh, we drove from my mom's house over to this park, and I couldn't believe it. I got there, and that river had flooded, and had flooded the entire park. The, the water was almost up to the road. You could barely see the tops of the picnic benches that I had envisioned us sitting down in and watching the sunset. And so I'm immediately panicking, and Elisa can see it on my face, uh, and, and she's like, That's, it's fine. She just thought we were just going to go watch the sunset. So I'm like, we can just watch the sunset from anywhere. And I'm like, no, this isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. There was a blockade in front of what uh, my plans were be- between me and my, my goal of proposing to Elisa. I ended up proposing her on the, <laughs> on the side of the road by, on Craft Avenue as the sun was setting because the second park I went to was flooded as well. <sighs> There were, there were things in the way of uh, me getting done what I wanted to get done. And as Christians, I think we need to ask ourselves, are there things in the way of me proclaiming the gospel message? Are there things that are obscuring the message? We all get frustrated at times, maybe when you're in an event and you're trying to see, and there's someone taller than you standing in front of you, blocking your way, and you want to say, down in front, come on, I can't see. Sometimes it can be that way with the gospel. And there are things, maybe because we've demanded our rights, maybe it's because of sin. I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of things we could talk about here that have gotten the way of the message, have gotten the way of the cross. What obstacles might those be in our heart and life? Second question I want to ask us this morning is what kind of things do I think I'm entitled to? What kinds of things do I think I deserve that God owes me? We've all felt this way at times. Even if we haven't consciously processed it. Some that I wrote down some of these, others I found as I was doing some research here, but maybe it goes something like this, maybe some of the big things of life. I deserve to have children, so why am I struggling with infertility? After all, aren't children a blessing from God? I'm tired of being single. I've remained pure and have sought Christ, so why hasn't he brought a spouse into my life? I'm such a hard worker. I don't understand why I still can't manage to find a high-paying job. I've worked hard my whole life, and now that I'm retired, I deserve to do what I want to do with my time and money. But what about smaller issues? I'm a good homemaker, and I work hard to keep the house clean and tidy. I deserve to have a nicer, bigger home. I work hard to provide for my family. I deserve to be able to sit down and watch TV when I come home. 
I've been good with my finances. I deserve to buy what I want for a change. I've been serving other people, and I deserve the right to use my time as I see fit. I know that I'm right about this issue that I'm arguing about with my spouse, and I deserve to win this argument. I have the right to be right here. What about comfort? What about our schedule? Privacy? My plans? We've all had times where we've articulated to God our plans, our vision, our dream for how our life should play out, what he should do for us. You've probably learned by now that God doesn't always operate according to our plans. What kind of things do I think that I deserve? And how do I respond when they don't go my way? Last night I was watching a a video that I hadn't seen in years uh, of a a missionary by the name of Otto Koning. And he told a story, and I I don't know how old this is, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, I don't know how old this story is. It's probably, the recording looked like it was probably 30 or 40 years old. He tells a story of he and his wife going to Papua. It's part of Indonesia, and it's, it's an area where even to this day there are many, many unreached tribal groups. Well, back when he went there, there were many who were still alive that remembered the days of headhunting and could tell stories of bringing home their enemies' heads and their wives and the women in the village parading around and holding ceremonies about it. So he was talking to, like, second generation, like, I mean, people who remembered headhunting. And, and so he's taking the gospel here to this people. And after he'd been there several years, he and his wife had a medical clinic, and they were just building relationships with the people. And it was very difficult to grow things there. It was near the coast and uh, very sandy soil. But he figured out that pineapples would grow there. And um, Otto, Otto took passion in his work, and uh, he began to grow these pineapples and was so excited to be able to reap the harvest of these pineapples. You have to understand, when you're a missionary out in the middle of nowhere, you've got no TV, no radio, uh, no other, no other uh, English speakers for miles and around. You take, you take pleasure in just the little simple things. And he was excited to reap the harvest of these pineapples. Well, he discovered that he knew that his people had an issue with, with stealing things, and so he, just, he did whatever he could to protect these pineapples from getting stolen. And uh, in, in a few weeks before they were ripe, he got up one morning and they were all gone. And he knew the people had stolen them. And, uh, and so he went and uh, confronted one of the village leaders who was wearing a shirt that he had stolen from the missionary and, uh, and, and said, what's going on? And, and they're like, I don't know, we, they were there and we took them. That's, you know, that's what we do. And so this happened several times, and he tried to do different things. And finally, like, he just began to get angrier and angrier, and he would, he would yell at the, the people and, and begin to uh, take away certain things. Like, fine, if you're going to steal my pineapples, we're not opening the medical clinic. Uh, he shut down the, the little trade store that they had developed. And pretty soon, the people decided to move away. They said, there's no reason to live here anymore. Uh, we're going to go and move to another part of the jungle where we can uh, grow things and hunt and everything. And so he said, those were some of the best six to eight weeks of my life. I had nobody bothering me, nobody looking in my windows, uh, invading my privacy, nobody stealing my things. Our silverware didn't disappear for, for, for weeks on end. It was just, it was bliss. But he said, I had a, another missionary just confront me and challenge me on that. 
You've got your pineapples. You've got all these things that you think you deserve the right to, but you've got no people. And so he sent a messenger in and into the jungle and said, you know, you guys need to come back. And, and uh, he said the next thing he tried was uh, he got a, a German shepherd that had been bred and raised by another missionary family. And he said, man, when that thing jumped off the, the missionary plane one day, he said, you should have seen the people run. Man, I tied that thing right up in the center of my pineapple patch, and I was sure that that was going to do it. Well, the problem was is that, that the people could see that, um, that the dog would chew through his vine that he was tied to in about 20 minutes. So they'd come for medical help, and they were like constantly watching, and they knew, like, okay, we've got three minutes left. We've got two minutes left. That thing's almost through. And, and so it was creating all kinds of anxiety for his wife because the people were pressing in on her. So, like she was breaking needles on their arm because they were so tense when she'd go to give them shots. And she's like, Otto, we can't have this dog around here. It's terrifying the people, and we're going to run into the same problem. We're going to have your pineapples, but we're not going to have any people to minister to. And he said, it wasn't until I finally gave it over to God and said, you know what, this is yours. Everything I have is yours anyway. The silverware that they keep stealing, the, our clothes off the line, the safety pins from our kids' diapers, all this stuff that they keep stealing, it all belongs to you anyways, God. And so uh, several, several cycles of pineapples went by, and he'd watch them out the window. He'd watch people sneak in and grab them, and he would just pray and say, okay, God, those are yours. I'm not going to get angry. Finally, one day, a group of the people came to him and, and said, Otto, um, you've been teaching us about this God. You've been teaching us what it means to be a Christian. And we notice now that you don't get mad anymore. You've changed. You're different. They said, have you become one of these Christians? He said, you know, you would talk to us about this man, Jesus, and you would describe the way he lived. And we thought to ourselves, we can't wait for the day when we get to see someone who lives this way. And they said, now we do. And he was so rebuked and so challenged by that. He said the added blessing that he got from the whole process was that as he gave everything over to God... And the people came back to him, and they said, listen, there's a problem. Um, he, well, he had, he had told them, he said, uh, he listened, listen, the garden's not mine anymore. And so they came back, and they said, we need to know who you gave it to. This is a problem. And he said, well, I gave it to God. And they're like, you need to go get it back. And, and he said, no, I'm, I'm much happier. That's why I'm not angry anymore. That's why I don't yell at you guys all the time. I, I'm, I, I'm at peace here. This is God's. You can do with it as you wish. And they said, no, seriously. And they found out, they asked him, they said, when did you decide to give this to your God? And he told them when he finally just had broken and handed it over to God. And they said, yeah, that's the problem. They said, you know what, ever since you did that, none of our crops are going. People are getting sick in the village. Things are going haywire ever since you gave this to God. And Otto was like, maybe it's because you're taking his pineapples. (laughs) And they began to learn and, and understand more about the God of the Bible. And they began to see it for the first time, lived out and acted out in front of them. And as God began to save and to change them, and Otto learned to give up his rights to what he think he owe, was owed and what he think he deserved, 
All of a sudden, people began to leave the pineapples alone. You know, in this life, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that we think, I've got the right to my time, I've got the right to my money, I've got the right to, you fill in the blank. And it becomes a roadblock to the gospel. Just like Otto Curing and his pineapples, and it might seem so silly to us. I wonder what our pineapples are. I wonder what our our, our prized possessions that we hold on to so dearly, I wonder what they are that keep us from, maybe they take up so much of our time, we don't have time to get the gospel out. They're becoming a roadblock. Maybe they occupy our money and we have no time to be able to give in the way that God has called us to give. What are those rights that God's calling you to give up today? That's my final question. How is God calling you and I to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel? What are we holding on to that seems so dear to us? What are we holding on to that's keeping us from giving our hearts fully to God? We must remember Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. That's not just talking about salvation. We as Christians, those who've trusted Jesus as our Savior, need to hear that every day. Because every day we're tempted to find something else, to find our identity in, something else to grab a hold of, and our hearts will be restless until we're resting completely in Him. That's Jesus' desire for us. How is He calling you, like the Apostle Paul, to give up something that you know you deserve so that others may know, so that our kids, our family members, those in our community, and those around the world can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we ask ourselves the tough questions and be able to give up what we think we're deserve, we deserve to gain a far, far greater reward. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning I want to ask that your Spirit might convict us deep within our hearts. Lord, this is going to look different for every single person. Every single person. I know many of the things that upset me, and they manifest themselves in anger. Because I don't think that I'm getting my fair share in that moment. I don't think I'm getting what I deserve. The truth of the matter is, your word tells us, God, that all of us deserve separation from you throughout all eternity in in hell. That's what we deserve. But by your grace and kindness, you've sent your son, Jesus Christ, that he might offer us life. Lord, may Jesus be enough for us. May we be willing to set aside what we think we deserve, the right to our own dreams or the right to uh, our time and, and our schedule, the right to be comfortable. Lord, whatever it is that's getting in the way of obscuring the gospel, getting in the way of your spirit cultivating within us a fire that we might proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, whatever it is, Lord, would you show it to us? And may we be willing to give it up 
knowing that it's so small. For the Corinthians, it was eating this meat, and Paul wanted them to see it's, it's not worth it. Lord God, may we see that demanding our right to what we think we're owed and entitled to, may we see that it's not worth it if it gets in the way of the gospel, if it gets in the way of hearing you call us, you igniting a fire in our bones that we might proclaim the message of the one who loved the world enough he would bleed and die and be crucified and sacrifice his life so that we might live. God, we need your help on this. We need the power of the Spirit to die to ourself so that we might live to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you this week as you serve him.